0: What radio, the music you want. With your host, Keys Dan. Oh, what kind of sandwich ain't too fattening? I have the sandwich. Radio What's up, party people? It's Keys Dan with RadioWhat.com, DJ LittleRock.com, coming to you live in a living color from the Radio What Studios. And this is my podcast, What Makes You Famous? It's an extension of the Radio internet radio station that I've been running for quite some time. And if you need DJ services, where do I always send you? DJlittlerock.com. One more time. DJlittlerock.com. Check availability and get a free price quote. And maybe you can have me at your next events. You know I like to party with the people. The people need to be entertained. Let me entertain you. Are you not entertained? <laughs> Make your next thing a big one. <laughs> Today on the program, Pete Tribuco. Who's Pete Pete Tribuco. Well, if you don't know by now, you're going to know in the next few minutes. So stick around for that. <laughs> you're going to get, well, I'm going to get to talk to Pete. Yeah. And you're going to get to hear about Pete. <laughs> this week's shows, I have two, count them, two public shows this week on Thursday night. I'll be at the Cedar Lounge Bar and Grill in Moralton, Arkansas for the video dance party karaoke jam from 6 to 10, 21 and over, please. Yes. We party on the patio. It's, uh, you know, they got the, the bar and they got the good food and they got the good people. Yeah. It's a good time. And you're the stars of the show. I did say karaoke, didn't I? <laughs> That's on Thursday night. We start the weekend early Cedar lounge, bar and grill, Morrilton Arkansas from six to 10. And then on Friday night, Friday night, my usual Friday night gig, I'll be at the Rab in Conway, Arkansas from 8 PM until one in the am full bar kitchens, open pool tables, yeah, they got a pool tournament on Friday night. So if you want to try to make some money playing pool, make some money out of playing pool. <laughs> I can't sing. So I let you sing. <laughs> you're the stars of the show. We get the stage is yours. You get to sing right next to little old me. Now, mind you, these two shows, wear a mask. Uh, definitely wear a mask when you're walking in, when you're interacting with people, when you're sitting down, having your drinky drinks and having a little food. you can Pull that mask down. but Hey, we're trying to take care of each other during this crazy time, this COVID-19 time. Who knows what's going on? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Only the scientists know, okay? And uh, you know, I, I try to pay attention to the scientists, and most of them are telling me, put the mask on. So I'm putting the mask on. All right. All right. <laughs> and we'll get through this together. Yes. All right. Without further ado, oh, yeah, I have a wedding on Saturday. Well, how could I forget that? But unless you're invited, you cannot come. The reason I admit, I uh, mentioned it is that weddings are coming back, baby. Yeah. I love weddings. I do. I get to be a part of the big day. I know that's cliche. It's your big day. Yes, it is your big day. All right. Let's get into it with Pete Tribuco. And now I did get Pete on the Skype. So if you're listening to the audio version of this, I encourage you to check out the video version on my YouTube page youtube.com forward slash user forward slash keys dan or just look up keys dan and find the keys dan youtube that has the radio what logo right next to it there it'll be there all right let's get into it with pete tribuco skyping pete tribuco now Pete Trabuco, did I pronounce that correctly? Uh yes, you did. Hooray! I I know how to pronounce voids. <laughs> did I did I do a good? Nice Italian boy. Yeah, I was uh, trying to. Okay, all right. Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Let's start there. Uh, give the people a little idea of who you are, Pete Trabuco. Okay. Are we on? Or are we just taping? Or how do we do this? Man, you just roll right into it, man. It's a conversation about you. It's all about. Pete Trabuco hanging out on the What Makes You Famous podcast. I I don't do fancy introductions. I I let you, I let it all unfold as time progresses. I I want the people to find out about you as I find out about you. I don't do a lot of research, although for you, it's kind of hard not to do a lot of research because I've been following you on social media for a little bit. So I, I know that you're, you got your hands in a lot of fires. You got a lot of tent poles, but you give the little blurb, the, if you're looking at the Wikipedia page, the top paragraph or two, what would Petra- Wikipedia say?
1: Well, I would say that uh, one of my claims to fame isn't actually being a, a writer with two books. And I've uh, been interviewed about 3,000 times on uh, every major network in the country. Uh, travel vacation, uh, I guess, talking ed, as you can see. Uh, I've done MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, Travel Channel, Weather Channel many times. But my claim to fame has nothing to do with a book author uh, or anything along those lines. Really, the thing I'm most proud of is uh, for about 10 years, I was involved with the American Heart Association. And my job was to get the automated external defibrillator bill through the state assembly here in New Jersey uh, under Good Samaritan. And once we did that, we used the best practices from what we did here in New York State and also in New Jersey. Uh, And got it in 50 states. So now every time you see a defibrillator at an airport or a defibrillator at a restaurant or even in your offices or your company in the cafeteria uh, and the airports and so on down the line, it all started in New New Jersey and New York. And I had a a pretty good uh, uh, part in what that was and what was going on there. Uh, So I did a lot of television interviews. I did a lot of radio. Even before I was doing the books talking about how it's how important it is to uh, have an automated external defibrillator in premise in order to save lives. And I think at the time we were saying a hundred thousand lives would be saved just in New Jersey alone over a year's time. And now it's not just uh, all 50 states, but it's now worldwide. So that's pretty much the claim of the fame. I don't think I'll ever reach that level again in my life, but I uh, had a real good time doing that. And uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, right now you find them everywhere. Uh, in the airports and restaurants, any public facility. I know Bill Clinton signed the bill, uh, President Clinton signed the bill in 1990. So I'm going back uh, many, many, actually see 1999, 2000. I'm going back 20 years, but uh, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm a pilot. Uh, I got old, so I stopped <laughs> flying and I started r- riding roller coasters. And I was afraid of roller coasters. So I got over that, um, that fear, basically writing just little memos. On each ride I was on, and uh, even though I was a pilot, I had a childhood fear. I overcame that, and that's how
0: both books came into being. Man, you just went. I, you just went, and you went. I love it. You, I can tell you do a lot of interviews. This is fantastic. But me being a, a former firefighter down in the Florida Keys from 89 to 99, I, I commend you. Defibrillators have saved many lives by my own hands. And you, man, how did you get involved with, with that? action Were were you involved in the medical field or the the, the wh- wh- how did you get involved with the defibrillator part of your past
1: well it's actually about that uh, mm-hmm. i had a background as a chief of staff in the new jersey state assembly you mm-hmm. have an assembly where you are too in a state house and and senators state senators and i was involved in the, the political aspect i won't tell you what party because i know that could start some issues uh, right by themselves I was more of a middle-of-the-road type of character, anyway. But uh, I had a lot of contacts at the state houses, and because of that, I was able once I got hired by the American Heart Association to not only run a 55 hospital, 5500 instructor program on advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support, and of course BLS, basic life support, which you took uh, as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. But I also, my job was to actually make sure to get the uh, you know the uh, the bill out and have the trial lawyers like it, the AMA like it, the paramedics like it, and everyone liked the bill, and that was an uphill battle because a lot of people wanted to be the only people that could handle an automated external defibrillator because obviously, if you watch the old emergency show, uh, they had a call, Rampart, and Mm -hmm. Rampart would tell them whether or not their heart rhythms were uh, VTAC or VFib or a systole uh, and decide whether or not they were shocking a patient. Well, this unit actually does all that for you. If I put the unit on you, it wouldn't shock. It would only shock on somebody on a shockable rhythm that will then restart the heart. It's basically like turning your computer off and turning it back on. You get a shock, a volt, startup, and the heart goes back into a normal sinus rhythm. So, But believe it or not, I had no background in that other than the fact that I had a political background to the point when they actually hired me to be the trainer for the New Jersey area and to run this program. My wife, who is a doctor, looked at me and says, "What did you put on your resume <laughs> that you got this job?" You know, and and the, the, the bottom line is, I have really I had no medical experience. Um, I learned very quickly. I got trained in track crash carts and 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 you know all the different aspects of, of being involved with that, and of course being able to talk like a doctor um, at major uh, or you know major functions and and all over the country to talk about why defibrillators save lives and how important they are, police departments, fire departments, EMS units, and so on down the line. And um, even one time, this is pretty, it's a cool story real quick. My -hmm. daughter was six years old and I had done all these, uh, these uh, special events. And I would go up there with my little Annie and, and say, and now I'm going to show you how easy it is to use an AED. and I go through the whole process. But this time I said, you know, I'm getting real tired of doing it myself. Is there anybody in the audience that would love to do that? And of course my, Seven-year-old daughter raised her hand. <laughs> it was a plant. It was a plant, but uh, she raised her hand just like I don't know if you remember. Uh, uh, Welcome back, Carter. Ooh, 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 ooh. That's what she did. Yeah, she made the noise like that. She came up, and now you got a seven-year-old who's actually working a unit, sitting there. You know, she's going through the whole motions because obviously she got coached on that. But mm-hmm. but the bottom line is, when it was all done, uh, every CEO that was there. Was so impressed that a seven-year-old can follow an ACLS advanced cardiac life support protocol and shock a patient back into a normal sinus rhythm and stabilize that patient for when EMS comes and you know and obviously gets gets taken to the hospital. Uh, so that was a fun experience. She did it more than once. She did it uh, maybe five or six times, and I can't tell you how many people uh, turned because they were all, all afraid of being sued and you know and going through that whole process or not knowing what to do. Fortunately, um, people saw how easy it was. It was on the good SAM. And then when American Airlines had that issue with uh, not having a defibrillator on board their airplane and they got sued, whereas the other aer- airlines did, uh, it became pretty much standard standard practice to have these defibrillators on board. So uh, it's a great experience. I'm, I'm really glad I was involved in that. And, I, and I'm really glad that it's all over the place at this point and that it does save
0: Literally hundreds of thousands of lives every year. Yeah, Engine One Fifty One and Arnold Schwarzen, uh, Arnold Horschak. Notwithstanding, uh, you are quite the salesman. I, I know that these uh, these defibrillators probably uh, got to have a, a high price tag, but but what price tag can you put on a human life, man? And you it, it really, I, I've seen these defibrillators all over all over the country. You know, in in many different places. Did they start? Did you start in New Jersey putting them in, or, or was that just your area that you had? They been in in wide use previous to that, uh, or, or did they start in New Jersey with this idea? Well, or, I got hired in
1: 1998. I was part of National out of Dallas, Texas, but I handled the New Jersey region mm. and in New Jersey, uh, I guess the uh, state housing and all those that goes along with that. Um, so in 1998, I was actually hired to do the job. In 1999. Uh, we actually pushed real hard to get it through the state house in New Jersey, through the assembly, and of course through the Senate, voted on by the governor. At the time was Governor Whitman, uh, Christy Whitman. And once the bill got passed, at the same time, we had a bill in New York state, which was following the same guidelines as New Jersey. I also went there, best practices to help out with that. And that bill got passed. So the first two bills, the passive defibrillator bill was in 1999. And it was the New Jersey and New York state, Albany and Trenton from that point on uh, it then became other people in other areas would call on me and other people to go in and show best practices, how we got the bill through the state assembly, how we got it through the state Senate, how we got it on the governor's desk and how we got the governor to sign the bill. It was really a no brainer Mm. because if you look at the units and, and what they do, and when a person, as you know, is clinically dead once they go into one of those rhythms. Uh-huh. The only way you can go is up, and no, no, no matter what you do, uh, you're, you're, you're going to save that life. Um, and We were able to get through that, so it started in New Jersey, and then from there, it, it went through all these different areas, but that was only one problem. Getting the units into the paramedics and the EMS and the hospitals and, and the lay people was one thing, but getting into the companies, that was another issue. And thank. Well, the one thing I'm really proud of is I have a sales background. And after we got the bills passed, uh, we had a meeting in Dallas, Texas, and everybody's trying to figure out how we're we going to get these units deployed. And I came up with the idea of going after the Fortune 500 companies. And in around 1999, late 1999, I approached Johnson and Johnson, huh. which is right here in New Jersey. And six months of work, we were able to get a pilot program at J and J, and their nine. Uh, company system, um, and that worked out really well. And once we got uh, Johnson and Johnson, then everyone fell into place. We had uh, IBM and uh, and uh, and all these different companies, all these Fortune 5s coming on board. And once they all came on board, and the Fortune 1000s came on board, and now it's pretty much where it's at at this point. But it was a long process. Once we got James J on board, I, I can go to Pfizer, I can go to IBM, I can go to these companies and say, hey, they've got them. And now all of a sudden. It's more like, well, the trial lawyers will say, if we don't have this, we can sue. So Mm -hmm. for them, it was a good deal to actually have this unit because it became standard of care. So it eventually reached reached your states not too long after, maybe six months later, uh, we started heading Midwest and and, and towards California and then down south in Texas and and Florida. Uh, By around 2000, it became pretty much standard of care in 50 states, and I believe in 2000, late 2000, Actually, early 2000, before he left office, um, Bill Clinton actually signed the bill into uh, into law. I think it was uh, yeah, around mid 2000.
0: Oh, that is cool as can be, man. I mean, once you got Johnson and Johnson under your belt, you can say, "Yeah, Johnson and Johnson's got it." Uh, you need to keep up with the Joneses or the Johnsons, if as as it is. And that's a, that's a good sales technique, man. Just so you are a good salesman. You got that un- under your belt. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Going through the, the tent poles of you. I got the books, uh, public speaking. I got the the DJ. You were a DJ. Hey, we, we've chewed a lot of the same dirt. I've been a DJ since 86. When did you start? When I started uh, in 82. Uh,
1: I ended up leaving DJing or disc jockeying on the radio because I ended up uh, making more money in sales and advertising. So I ended up doing uh both on-air gigs or on-air, uh, uh, I guess, uh, since, uh and also basically uh, full-time in sales. And uh, whenever uh, one of the stations I was on was, was a daytimer, and it would power down at a certain time from 1,000 watts to maybe 250 watts. And nobody wanted to do that shift, so Arnold Horschach here. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> so, so it ended up being the Power Down with Pete show for an hour and a half, which was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I did that. I, I'm doing a radio show right now uh, in Philadelphia called The Weekly Rush, and we we're entertaining guests. Like we just had Cool in the Gang on. Cool from Cool in the Gang. Uh, <laughs> that I is had, Cool uh, in the Gang. <laughs> oh, I tell you, he has a new he has a new champagne out. Not only is he doing 100 uh, I guess 100 concerts a year before COVID, but he also has a new champagne uh, called Cool which actually I tried it in New York city when I was there for his opening. And uh, we talked about it on the radio. It's actually very good. It's a hundred dollars a bottle, but it's well, well worth it. It's a very good, very good bottle of champagne.
0: Excellent, man. I mean, I, I, how many times have I said that's cool in the gang for, you know, that's good. That's groovy. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, they're wonderful, man. And I still play. I l- love cool in the gang. That's cool. And they're still doing it. Ah. Uh. Yeah. and okay so back in 82 well wh- okay you're from new york and now you're in jersey but then you worked for a company in texas did you spend any time in texas or was this you working in jersey for a texas company
1: i was working in jersey for a texas company american heart association i spent a lot of time in national because i was attached to national but mm-hmm. so my primary duties was the 55 hospitals and the 5500 instructors that and you've had to take those courses yourself the uh, bls courses the ACLS courses. Oh, yeah. at your local hospital or your local place where you have the instructors coming in my job was to train the actual hospital system to train the trainers to train the people that went out to train the police the fire the EMS the nurses the residents and so on down the line it all came down to my desk and me signing off on a with a CEO for a major medical f- facility at the time so it was a, it was an amazing job I'm glad I did it and I had a lot of fun doing it, and that's kind of almost what eight years uh, with them. And eventually, the my job was actually replaced uh, with a job in Dallas, Texas. And mm. I'm a New Yorker. There's no <laughs> way I'm, I'm going to be able to survive in Dallas saying y'all and stuff. So I just couldn't do it.
0: Well, that's a, a, amazing man. I, I've never been really farther north than the Mason Dixon line. I'm from Miami, you know, and I I was a firefighter down in the Florida Keys, and that's where I started my my radio. Uh, my radio life was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I guess that in '86, that's where I started there. But in '82, uh, what station were you on, and where was it again?
1: I was again. This was my first gig. I just yeah. graduated from college. I did an internship at a radio station called WJDM 1530, and it was a little 500 watt radio station, probably not more powerful than your blow dryer. Remember the blow dryer <laughs> way back then. Uh, this thing, basically, when I was going out to sell advertising, if they had fluorescent lights on and they were five feet away from the, the transmitter, it might not work where I could hear the station because I'll probably hear the static from the, uh, from the fluorescent light. So that was a fun experience. It was a great little radio station. We covered part of New York City, but mostly uh, New Jersey and Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, pretty much we had maybe, like I guess we had some pretty good listeners and a good following, a lot of our, the DJs that came out of, uh, of uh, WJDM. Like even Crazy Eddie, uh, he started for um, the old. <laughs> His Crazy prices are insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think he's still in jail. I'm not sure, but, but uh, he he started at WJDM, and we had a whole bunch of people like Frank Frank Sapola, uh, who ended up going to, to Channel Nine News, and then later on WNBC <laughs> with Supermodels, <laughs> and uh, and also with uh, with uh, miss in the morning. So I mean, we had some pretty good people that came out of uh, out of the radio station. But that was my first stint, and uh, I stayed there for many years and really had a great time.
0: Yeah, anybody that's seen Private Parts knows WNBC and uh, how Howard Stern had a, uh, I guess they had a, a, he had a feud with IMS. He he must have had some kind of a, a personal issue with him uh, on this, on that channel, if I'm remembering that correctly. <laughs>
1: it's true. In fact, uh, in fact, Frank Cipolla, he was our news director over at um, WJDM. Uh, he wrote a book later on, and he, it's basically a great book. It actually t- tells a story about in between both of them was Snoopy Sales. Snoopy Sales was doing the midday, <laughs> and Snoopy was Soupy was trying to keep the the peace. He was like a referee in a major bout between uh, Imus and uh, and uh, and what it? Um, and uh, Howard Stern. He had to try to like get in between those two
0: to try to keep, um, you know, because they really did not like each other. Now, what an amazing time for radio, man! Those are like three big giant you know uh, uh, icons uh, of, of American history uh, entertainment uh, soupy sales come on man that's great <laughs> and and you were somewhere in the mix there and this is all in the no the, the WNBC was definitely not a thousand watts dick see I worked on a on a so fifty thousand
1: that, yeah that's a fifty thousand Clear Channel radio station
0: you can hear that in about 15 states oh yeah yeah I've, I've done hundred thousand I've done fifty thousand. I've done a thousand watt stick, like in the middle of Miami on Miami beach. And that, that hits quite a few people. As long as you're somewhere in the residential or, or, or somewhere in the business area, uh, close to the beach. Yeah. But that, you know, was it, was that first station AM or FM?
1: Oh, it was an AM oldies radio station. We played <laughs> the top hits from the seventies and eighties. And it was, uh, back then you could do AM radio and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 1982. So obviously that's no longer the case. In fact, the station I'm on now, is a ten thousand watt radio station out of Philly, and really, it's all talk. I mean, talk, religion, sports—really, are the three main, uh, I guess, uh, things you can do now on AM radio. Mm-hmm. Unless you're uh, attached to an FM station, that's pretty much what's left on AM at the end these days.
0: Yeah, I think they have repeaters and and such. Uh, now, uh, oh, oh, what was I thinking? Oh, uh, oh, oh my goodness, uh, AM. Oh, there was something I was there was something in my head that you. Uh, but uh, no, that's that's all right. I've I, I've totally fired on on what I was uh, about to think. I was thinking about you were mentioning mm, AM FM. Oh well, no problem, no big deal. <laughs> uh, let's let us continue uh, further on into the yeah. into the into the history of Pete Trabuco. Tribu- uh, uh, man, uh, once you got out of radio, um, th- then you you went to radio sales or did you go to a different sales job?
1: I ended up uh, spending about 15 years in radio sales okay. between several radio stations, became a sales manager. Uh, but then I also became a pilot. Obviously I wanted to overcome my fear of, uh, of, of, of roller coasters. So what better way to overcome your fear of roller coasters and learn how to fly. And again, I got to thank my wife for that because uh, she uh, ended up uh, having me take a, a little flight uh, at the Grand Canyon in a little airplane, a little putt-putt airplane. And I loved it so much that I actually went back and uh, learned to fly, became a pilot, did a lot of aviation, learned to do loop the loops and emelins and some crazy stuff, and uh, had real fun with that. And uh, eventually, that led into jobs outside of radio. Uh, I became a, a a person in the aviation industry, and I did a lot of aviation uh, jet parts for your Gulfstreams and your Learjets and your Challengers, and uh, basically ch- traveled pretty much all over the country and uh, L selling jet parts uh, for aircraft. And uh, and all this time I've been writing, so I was writing the books, and I ended up uh, getting involved with the astronaut program. I covered three astronaut uh, launches, STS-124, Atlantis, STS-132, I think that was Discovery, and STS-135, which was Atlantis, and that was the last flight to go into space. And I spent uh, many hours with these astronauts in the simulators with them, uh, you know, strapped in upside down. flipping on back and forth. And I ended up writing uh, several articles that got published uh, in multiple magazines, not just here, but in England, Australia. Uh, Basically, I think the title was Astronaut for a Day. Uh, And I'm spending a full day with both mission control. And if you ever saw the movie Apollo 13 during the scene where everything goes crazy and the bells and whistles are going off, that is exactly what was happening uh, during the seven launches and six, uh, I guess, re-entries uh, that we did during the, uh, the time I was with them. I mentioned only six because on one of them, we didn't make it. We actually burnt up in the atmosphere. So, uh, oh. And uh, I was there to see how things can go pretty wrong in a full motion simulator at, at, over at Johnson Space Center.
0: That is amazing. Now, I remember what the question was about the radio. But after that story, uh, in 82, did you still need to have an FCC license? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, But
1: that was going away, but yeah, we did. I remember when I was on that college radio station on my WKNJ 90.5.
0: Yeah, by 80- uh, 80. We, we were at 10 Watt Wonder. Oh. 10 Watt Wonder, I'll <laughs> tell you. By 86 uh, at but, WKPX, uh, some of the, the people had FCC license, but they didn't have to uh, by that time. But yeah, tell, tell me about uh, WKPX in Fort Lauderdale was a college radio. It was out of Piper High School, but it, it was for a Broward uh, Community College. And that's, that's what that's what my first radio experience was. But tell me about the your college radio and and man and and, and uh, I don't even want to talk about radio anymore. Kennedy uh, or Johnson Space Center or what doing space uh, or piloting. Where did you go with the piloting? And it seems like every job that you have, you start in the in the with well, the glamour job like being on the radio, and you re- you realize that being on the radio, you don't make any money on the radio. It's the it's the novelty. It's the the um, celebrity of being on the radio is how you make any money. Oh, hey, we like your voice. We like how you sound on the radio. Why don't you come uh, to our grand opening? Why don't you come to our party and DJ our, uh, DJ our event? Uh, you know, that kind of a thing. That's where you make the money on the radio for the most part. Uh, there's a few That's people weird. like Imus and Howard Stern and, and others that have made, you know, hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars. But for the most part, yeah, it's ten bucks an hour, you know, <laughs> and some swag. Here's a T-shirt, you know, <laughs> and a CD. But you no, got into the cool. sales you're, job. You're, I'm sorry. Yeah, but you you went from radio to sales, and then you went from piloting to sales again. You know, so it seems like you, you know, you, with sales, you can make your own money. I, I did sales at Bally's, and I remember that there was like a six fifty draw, and then anything you made over that was yours. You know, was yours to keep. You pay back the draw. And then you, you know, hey, you can make thousand a week, two thousand a week, whatever, depending on how how many um, gym memberships you sell. And I was doing pretty good <laughs> over at Bally's. But I, you can make your own money as a salesman. Uh, is, is that what is that what led you to sales? Was being able to set your own salary? Well, you
1: know, and and you're a disc jockey, so you know what it's like. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's so much fun to do, it and nothing, and for those people that want to be radio disc jockeys or radio announcers, there's no more. You will have no more. Any, that's the most fun you can ever have uh, is is to actually do that. Uh, unfortunately, there we're a dime a dozen. There's a lot of us out there that do this, and, and unfortunately, uh, in most unless you're in a major market, you're really not going to make a lot of money doing that. You're going to make money on doing side deals uh, with uh, with people, you know, with with companies and organizations. Um, good case. I mean, you, you mentioned IMUS in the morning and and Howard Stern. Uh, There were people, there were sales reps at WNBC that made a lot more than they did. And Soupy Sales, I won't tell you what Soupy made because he didn't make a heck of a lot. And he was the third guy, he was the third wheel during the afternoon drive. So, you know, radio and television don't pay as much as sales did. But the way I looked at it, I enjoyed being doing both. I enjoyed being on the air, I enjoyed talking with the audience, getting them in the mood, making them feel good about a, a, a memory a song, talking up to the post, which was very important way back when. And for those that don't know what that means, you got to talk right up into the instrumental ends and the, and the vocal starts, and you got to get that right. So that was always fun to do. But let's face it, life is sales. You sell yourself every day. Everything you do in life has to do with promoting yourself, establishing a rapport with people, enjoying people. And I love to do the live remotes. I had the most fun doing those because I met people. I met different individuals. I got to know who they were. And that's the thing about sales that I really liked over these years is that every day is different. You meet a lot of different people and you can have a lot of fun and understand what people are all about and what types are out there. And, uh, you know, I would be awful if I was on a island by myself, just talking to myself. That would not be fun. I'd rather be with uh, a thousand people. Cannibals. I'd. I'd make conversation with them or something, you know, it, it would be a lot more fun to do that. So I, I'm, I like being around people.
0: <laughs> Cannibals. Hey, this Fred tastes good. Mm, what is this? A leg? <laughs> All no, right. Pete. Well, you're, you're a people person, man. I love it. That's great, man. But see, I'm a salesperson. So
1: it wouldn't be me. You're reading. It would be the guy over there. Cause I would sell the program mm-hmm.
0: and why he tastes. Better. Yeah. Fred tastes great. <laughs> I didn't say Pete tastes great. <laughs> Pete's Pete's living, man. Pete's having some dinner. Uh, Pete uh, Pete knows how to talk his way around a situation. Uh, you got the gift of gab, man. I've been I've been talking in the mics for a long time, and and yes, there's not a lot of money that I've made on the radio, but definitely it's outside and and, and meeting people, oh yeah, and getting to to interview uh, people like you, and and you know having I've had hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe thousands of interviews over the last. Since 1986, so uh, you know. Not, uh, what I like about this type of interview is I get to dig a little deeper into who Pete Tribuco is and and find out more about you, man. It, there's so much. Uh, I, I I kind of skimmed your bio, but there's so much more to you. There's so much nuance uh, to to people. You're never just one thing, and I see that that you you like to put your hands in a lot of pots, man. And and so tell me about tell me about the. The roller coasters. You said you were scared of roller coasters and you wrote a book about roller coasters. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah,
1: it was therapy. It was actual. Yeah, I said going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I saved money and I wrote a book on it. What, what happened was is I was about seven or eight years old and I got on a roller coaster and I wasn't ready for it. And I cried the whole time. And when I got off, I swore to myself that I would never ride another roller coaster in my entire life. And that went on until around maybe 40 years old, which I didn't. I mean, I, when I was dating my wife, uh, I was holding her pocketbooks and watching her and waving at her while she was going on rides. And and I, I didn't like it, but at the same time, I didn't want to go through that. My daughter was born in 1996. And at that point, I said, you know, I don't want to always sit on the sidelines and do this. And at that point, I was already a pilot. I got up my house license in 92, uh, and I realized that if I could get a pilot's license, and again, my wife got me to the up my better half got me to that level. Uh, Why can't I get over this roller coaster thing? So I decided that I was going to do a program and I went through all the different rides. In the background, you can see one of the rides that I did, which uh, obviously is Millennium Force, one of the tallest and fastest roller coasters in the country. I started slow. I kept taking notes on every single ride that I was on. And eventually I got to the really large ones. And one day someone looked at my book and says, Hey, you just wrote all this stuff on about 300 roller coasters. You got everything. Why don't you put that into a book? And that's what happened. I ended up uh, I ended up, uh, you know, writing a book. first book was in 2009, America's Top Roller Coasters and Amusement Parks. Yeah. And then my second book came out, uh, A Personal Guide to the Best uh, Amusement Park, Thrill Rides and Roller Coasters and, and, of course, water parks. And that came out in 2018. So uh, it was more therapy to do the books. I got a lot of television interviews, and you can figure out why. The hook of the
0: book is: uh, we got a pilot here who just looked loose, but he's afraid of roller coasters. <laughs> and, he, and he wrote books on that. We know, so. <laughs> man. Everybody's got to uh, got to have a hook, and that is quite a hook, man. I, I figure by the time you're you're a pilot, you you can't you can't be afraid of anything, really. You're up in the air. But okay, that first roller coaster. Do you remember where it was? And was it a wooden roller coaster, or was it a you know my? My favorite ride on the, at the amusement park is always the bumper cars. I, I like to stay on the yeah. ground, too. But I, I'll ride a roller coaster. But do you remember what your first one was and where it was?
1: It was on Staten Island. It's just off Seaside Boulevard. It was a small little park. The ride itself is maybe the, the, the drop was five feet. At most, it was about five feet. Uh, and unfortunately, um, see, the thing is, and this is uh, in my chapters in, in my books, I talk about fighting fear, getting over your fear. Yeah, I got over the fear, but I never got over the childhood fear of being on a roller coaster. So anytime I would attempt, my mind would go back to the day I was I was at that little roller coaster, and I would at that point basically freeze up, uh, even though I did the loop the loops at five thousand feet, you know, uh, upside down, emblems, uh, and and whatever. Uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't a roller coaster where I'm strapped in and I'm hanging in there and So that is the fear you had to get over, was the childhood fear. And like I said in my books, the only way you can do that with any fear, whether it's a fear of public speaking, of spiders, of of anything, is you've got to take your fear on full, straight on, head on, and overcome it. And that's pretty much what I did in my fear of flying, uh, to become a pilot. And I had help from my wife, obviously, who got me on board uh but i need i need a little question once i got that that's uh that's what the whole situation is is it's about fear it's about overcoming your fear and um whether it's roller coasters or whatever uh, i always recommend people listen you got a fear hit it head on don't back off because it'll be with you for the rest of your life and that's not a good way to live
0: peter brucco for a seven year old a five foot drop could be Huh, it, it might as well be a mile, man. It, 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 yeah, I could see it. I could see it be, being pretty daunting. Now, your wife sounds like a very special lady, man. Sounds like uh, she's through thick and thin, and and pushing you along, and and making sure. And not not only you have your your wife, but you also have a, a little lady as well. Uh, born in ninety six. That's fantastic, man. A couple ladies in your life that that uh, help help keep you young, uh, and and maybe put a few gray hairs in your head. Cause you worry too much right <laughs> we worry absolutely. about our families <laughs>
1: absolutely I mean they're the best part of my life in fact without them I have no clue where I'd be at this point so I'm, I'm very grateful and uh, and very happy that they're they're around and, and taking all my guff uh, all the time and everything you know that I end up doing but because uh, you know my wife and my daughter are probably a lot more talented than I am but they like being behind the scenes and uh, and they're very good at it and they actually make everyone else look good so um, I'm really happy to to, to be uh, in their lives.
0: Well, I, I'm guessing you, you're still on, on TV uh, quite often. Uh, you still do what the news, uh, like news segments uh, every day or every couple of days? Or wh- how does that work? Are you still in the entertainment business? <laughs> well, listen, you only
1: go around once in life. I learned that very early on. to do as many things as you possibly can, mm. uh, if you possibly can. I mean, so... Uh, yeah, I, uh, I my full-time jobs have always been either in sales or, or in entertainment of some sort. Uh, right now, I do a, a radio show because I wanted to get back into it again, uh, which we're doing extremely well. We've got some, some big guests that, that are coming on, that, are, that have come on. Uh, but uh, most of the time, I get interviewed for who's in CNBC and uh, Travel Channel and on what's happening worldwide. If a plane goes down, I get a call. Why did the plane go down? Uh, if there's a few, pl- few places go up, uh, I'm at an airport talking with uh, CBS, Channel 2, New York City, and they want to talk to me uh, in person or you know, before COVID or now about what's going to happen at these airports. What should you do if you're a passenger and you need to uh, get on a plane or you know or the, let the buyer beware for summer rentals? Uh, I, pretty much, I think I've covered literally hundreds of topics uh, from um, networks and radio stations and that basically just want to talk to me because I'm billed as a travel and vacation and aviation guy. Uh, and if you need to have a quick interview, usually I can find the time to find one. And, and, and you know, I've done interviews in cabs. I've done interviews at airports. I've done interviews uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, so I'm a pretty good uh, person to talk to. And if I don't know the answer, I'll just say, listen, I don't know. But a lot of times... I'm able to do that and that's one of the reasons why I've been interviewed over
0: 3000 times over the last 10 years. Oh, you want to you really want to fill the rest of that time, you could start a podcast. <laughs> and and you always ha- always have something to do and and a uh, microphone to talk into. Whether you do it by yourself or you uh, give advice about the different uh, avenues, the different experiences that you've had over the years or you can do an interview show like like I'm doing with you right now. Now, I noticed that uh, just recently you must have you talked to Myra uh, I'm. I'm a fan, man. Uh, th- how was uh, the interview with Myra? I, I, I talked to her eh, maybe about uh, a half a year ago. And, and um, I've been a fan since she uh, since she did the, st- the Dancing in the Street song way back when I started playing that on the radio when she was just a little girl. That's right.
1: That's right. Dancing in the Street. And then later on. She hit it big, obviously, with Miracles Happen. Uh, I've known Myra for for about since 2004, 2005, when when Princess Diaries did came out. I've been in touch with her. Uh, She actually was billed as the first Latino woman to actually uh, be marketed by Disney. Every other Latino uh, woman that has come out of Disney owes uh, a lot of gratitude to Myra because she started that whole thing way back when. Uh, with that with this with those number one hits and uh, she's just an amazing woman very religious in California I just interviewed her again I got an interview show it's an hour show called uh, the weekly rush on the radio station and uh, uh, bottom line can I give the website of the radio station is that possible you
0: can you can say whatever you want it's your your podcast Buco.
1: well it's the uh, radio station is www.wwdb. 860, I'm sorry, www.wwdbam.com. And then you can go right to the podcast because we also have podcasts podcast in addition uh, to the actual radio show. So that would be www.wwdb.com. Uh, I believe Myra was my my second interview um, and she's just an amazing woman. If you ever get a chance to interview her, um, please do. I, I She would love to talk. She's got a new album coming out. She's got new music coming out. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted it. Get her on my show uh, she's got an amazing voice a beautiful daughter uh, and she's very well for her herself in her life she's very big in the Latin community up in the San Francisco area and uh, she's just a, she's just a doll and,
0: and I love her well like I said I had her on the podcast about six months ago so yeah I talked to her uh, it was almost about two hours I think and, and we we chit chatted about but all the stuff you were just talking about it's just wonderful but yeah I noticed that you had you had talked to her recently but uh, for somebody like you who has so much experience, uh, I, I couldn't. I I want you to have a podcast. You need to have a podcast. Uh, I could see, uh, you know, that you would spend a lot of time uh, to the to the dismay of your family. It, it might take away from your family time. Uh, so maybe that's a bad idea. Maybe I ought to rethink this. But I
1: missed I missed radio a lot. I, I I've been done. I've done a lot of television. I prefer to get interviewed. You know, when, when you're at Fox News or or CNBC or or uh, you know the Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever, uh, it's so much fun when somebody else is doing the heavy lifting and all you're doing is answering questions. You know, it's it's it, and I've been learning this now because it's been about 10 years since I did a radio show uh, that interviewing people is a lot more difficult than actually being the person being the person that's interviewed. Uh, and, and it's you have to know the questions you've got to know where you're going to go with the interview when to stop them you know when to when to do a, a lot of different things podcasts uh, we'll eventually get there the show that we're doing now will eventually go syndicated we want to get our feet wet uh, so we're going to spend about a year in philly get it going really well and then we'll we'll attempt a, a, a syndication on one of the networks and and you know we're working on details of that but i also do acting so i'm involved in doing uh you know television and, and acting and i've done a lot of theater in the new york area new york city as well as uh in that place so uh, that keeps me busy as well so i'm not sure if i could ever fit a podcast in.
0: <laughs> well i gotta figure out that whole q a thing because most of my podcasts are fly by the seat of my pants you know what it is is it's a conversation i want things to unfold kind of like an uh, uh, like a job interview or, or like a date hey we're on our first date Pete Buco. And I'm learning about you, man. Hey, tell me about yourself uh, while we're having, uh, I guess I, I have some tea sitting here. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about the acting, man. Uh, see, there's there's another tentpole that just showed up. Uh, when did the acting start? Was that something that you did as a seven-year-old when you gave up uh, roller coasters forever? No, actually, I started acting in college. And the reason why, I was on the
1: football team and I was on the baseball team. And both teams were not very good so there were not a lot of people that came to our games we lost everyone practically <laughs> uh and i was a starter so and that's why we, we were that bad because i was a starter and i'm like 5.9 <laughs> and about 180 pounds and i was a, a wide receiver so the only way to really meet girls was to actually go and become the theater program which we had a very good theater program at kane university uh and very good theater that held 1100 seats and it was one of these state-of-the-art places and there were a lot of women, and I will be honest with you. Uh, it was a way to actually meet women, and I got involved in that. Stayed with it for four years, had fun. Uh, left the industry, the radio, and I didn't get back into it until my daughter got into it, um, many years later. And she's a very good actress. She's done movies. She's actually uh, doing a lot of uh, a lot of the makeup artists that you see, and all the stuff that's that's done. She's doing the special effects and makeup, uh, as well as a full time master's degree in public health working for Mount Sinai hospital. She's in the thick of it right now in New York city with COVID. Uh, but she also does that. But, uh, you know, to get back to, to that whole program, uh, I got back into the acting cause she was doing it and I ended up, um, you know, people said, you know, we need some people, you know, I mean, we need an old an old person in the scene or we need to do this. We need to do that. And before you know it, I ended up getting calls and, um, I've done a lot of musicals. I've done a lot of, uh, um, off Broadway in new york city uh, the Pro- the producers club um, we also did um, uh, a lot of musicals like the last the last couple of musicals I did was really fun the, my publicist said hey listen you're a travel and vacation guy you talk about travel and vacation on all these networks and everything why don't we get you in Mamma Mia and you can be um, a bill austin the guy who's the travel guy you know that might work out really well because then you can promote it and say a travel guy playing a travel guy, a Mamma Mia, and I said, but I really can't sing. Right. So, uh, <laughs> that, that was a little bit of an issue, but, you know, I've been an ABBA fan, and I'm sure you have too. Oh yeah. Many, many, many. And I know every ABBA song, and I can probably, I, I can probably sing the melody of those songs, and, uh, and the good thing about Bill Austin is he doesn't really have a solo in the show. Uh, he does sing a lot of chorus, and he does have certain parts where he's actually singing by himself, but never a full song. So I was able to pull it off um, and, I, and I did a, I guess I did a good job because I got another director who wanted me to do the show again. Uh, and then again, during COVID, uh, I was going to do the show a third time for a, a regional theater. And unfortunately due to COVID, that, that was canceled. But uh, yeah, I've done that. I've done White Christmas. I've done, uh, whole, you know, Anything Goes. And a whole bunch. Of Mr. Roberts was a, was a great one to do i did a lot of that and sometimes you get paid sometimes you don't it's, it's more like just for the love of theater and just have fun and and uh, but it all started because my daughter was involved and
0: i wanted to uh to be around see that's a good way to have some family time that's fantastic man you and th- that shows that you're a good dad too that you uh you wanted to spend time with your baby girl and hey that's a way to spend time with her hey, you know for for me in in high school when i was trying to get over my fear of girls I, I took dance and I, I took fashion marketing. I, I never got into the theater, but uh, yeah, that was, that was the, the, the similarity. The, where the similarity ends, That's where I, I, I wanted to meet up with girls. So did, did uh, I guess theater helped you in that respect to uh, get over your fear of girls and, and, and help you uh, uh, to, to uh, get some dates, I guess. <laughs> oh, well, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> well,
1: I, I was lucky uh, when I was in high school and of course, Everything happens in high school, as you know. In high uh-huh. school, I was on the football team. I was on the baseball team, and we had one heck of a football team. We were we were city champions in New York City. Uh, we actually played uh, several of our games at Yankee Stadium or at Shea Stadium, uh, the finals. And we had the, every Thanksgiving Day, uh, we played the big Thanksgiving Day parade uh, game on Thanksgiving on one of the major television stations here in New York City. So our game got televised. Uh, so, so being on the, uh, unlike in college, being my team, New York high school, uh, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of clout and it was very popular. So, and the, the thing you do uh, when you first uh, join a school is you make the football team and you date a cheerleader. And then after you've done that, you're like the cool person. So I was lucky enough to actually do that in the first freshman year. I started dating cheerleader and for four years I dated a cheerleader and everything was pretty
0: cool. That is pretty cool, Pete Trabuco. You're pretty cool. Man, I, I knew you were going to be a good dude. And, 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 you know, after following you on social media a little bit and, and and learning, man, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. It took a little bit to, to get us together, uh, but I'm glad that it finally worked out. I, I, but, uh, you know, there's there's more to you. What What is the public speaking all about? Uh, there's another tentpole. Uh, when did you start uh, motivational speaking or public speaking uh, added to your repertoire
1: well you know again that all started from the american heart association okay uh motivational speaking doing events uh, being being called to, to talk in front of groups it, it's all about motivating yourself i mean uh, and again thanks to my wife uh i'm, yeah. uh, I'm able to be a lot more positive positive. and i think a lot of what i teach or what i preach or what i try to do with others uh is because of the things that she has instilled in me uh now if i only do it for myself all the time that would be great but but uh, you know, basically, you do a lot of that, and again, it's motivational speaking is it's very important to keep people positive, especially now during a pandemic and COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, your mental health is is probably the most important factor uh, in doing this. Yeah, a lot of salespeople are down now because they can't go out and meet people, and they've got to do something they've never done before. They got to do with what us radio jocks do with our voice, and that is, or radio announcers or podcast people, and that is being able to talk to people on the phone using voice inflection and using our rapport as opposed to trying to rely on other things and motivating people to do that. You know, I mean, a lot of people are afraid to pick up that phone. They're afraid of rejection. They're afraid of the the phone being hung up on them uh, and not getting anywhere with customers or clients. Uh, So that's that's a motivation factor as well. So, yeah, from time to time, I do that. It's on my website and I've done uh, a lot of different motivational programs. I try to do it for people that need it Uh, most of the time uh, I won't even ask for pay um, because it's usually for veterans organizations and it's usually places like that. And I'd rather pay it forward. So uh, my books right now, any money I receive from my books, all that money goes to charity. Um, So, you know, I try, I try to always pay it forward. I'm, 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 you know, I've been very, I've been very lucky. God, God has been very good to me. And I like to be able to pay for it. Now I want to talk about you. And what you have done, okay, being a firefighter, now that is something that my (laughs) brother does. My brother does that. And I'll tell you, anyone, you know, they say anybody who's in an airplane, flies an airplane and flips it upside down and does crazy things at 10,000 feet is really crazy. Well, no, a firefighter is probably the craziest thing because you're running into buildings. And and again, I'm from New York. I was there in 911. I was there in New York City. My brother was actually in. One of the towers, thank mm-hmm. God he survived, but he, it fell. And I knew a lot of firefighters uh, that I went to school with at New York high school, played football with me who perished uh, during that. And when everyone's running out of a burning building, you guys are running in. So thanks again for your service.
0: No, that was an interesting time in my life. Uh, you, you know, I was, I was always doing something else with, with, uh, you know, while I was doing the firefighting, but, uh, yeah, running into the building it was kind of crazy, and having little fireballs and and things exploding around me while I'm trying to put the wet stuff on the red stuff. Yeah, it, it's it's tough. And then, well, when I got the job in the in the hospital, uh, you know, about uh, seven years into firefighting, I, I said, well, let me find out what happens in the hospital. I had a, a few days off, so I started. I became an EMT in the hospital, a, a tech and and I learned about EKGs going back to the beginning of this podcast and, and phlebotomy and that kind of thing. That was, that was kind of a fun part of my life, man. Saving, saving lives, well, maybe, you know, but, uh, definitely helping people with, is what we, sh- what we all should be doing. And it sounds like you're a people person anyway, you deal with, with people on a, on a, you know, on a personal level, even if you're, you're trying to sell them something, you try to get to know them and see if they actually need that thing that you're trying to sell, you know, Hey, I, I do have something in my, in my case that could help you in your life as a salesman. And it, you know, cold calls. That's so crazy. Unless you had the good leads uh, you know, working at Bally's, uh, I, if I didn't have leads, I would open a phone book and call people and see if they wanted yeah. a gym membership. I, I, that is like the, that's, that is the hardest part of, of sales I think is cold calls. How often did that happen, or did you always have the good leads like Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross? No,
1: unfortunately. Uh, and again, I've actually trained salespeople. Um, the job that I'm in, basically, I, I oversee. I have 12 different reps from all over the Northeast um, that I trained, hired, recruited, trained, and then I've gone on the road with them. And I've done this many times. Best practices: uh, sales is 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 a, is a process. Uh, you have to be a people person for that. You've got to be able to deal with rejection. Most importantly, uh, as a salesperson, you've got to be able to walk into a place and know that nine times out of ten you're going to get rejected. But it's always that tenth time that you know it's always a numbers game, and you're always going to be able to succeed as long as you keep a positive attitude about yourself and about what you're doing. You will be able to succeed, and it's just basically a numbers game establishing a rapport, and that's very important. Having that person trust you uh, and not sell something that they don't need. Try to, you know, try to look into what they need and, and go from there. And again, it's, it's everything in life. I mean, when you sell yourself, if you're on a job interview, same thing happens. You've got to be able to sell yourself. You've got to be able to find out and be a good listener, find out what a company needs or a person needs, and then be able to say, well, here's how I can fit into that program in order to help you do that. One of the hardest things I ever sold was radio advertising because you cannot touch it. You cannot feel it. You cannot, uh, it isn't like a coupon. You can bring it into a local restaurant or a store and say, here, I got that. Uh, radio advertising is a concept. It's a concept sell. And even now with new radio stations, with all the, the internet, it's still more of a concept sell where you're actually doing name recognition. Uh, you're, you're paying a lot of money to get that name recognition as a secondary outlet. Uh, and a lot of people, unless you establish a rapport with them on that, it's a very tough sell, but if you could sell advertising, you know when I'm when I was hiring people, um, and I'm not doing that now. i during, during COVID, of course. But if they had radio advertising background and they were successful there, I wanted to talk to them because that's pretty much, <laughs> you know, what we're doing now. You know, selling uh, you know disposable gloves, wipers, safety equipment, PPE equipment. Uh, it's a lot easier than selling uh, a 60-second spot uh, you know, during midday uh, when you can't visit somebody and. And show them what you know—the um, commercial or what you're doing.
0: Yeah, you made me think of Billy Crystal in City Slickers. I think that was his job, and the whole reason that he needed a, a break and time off. What do I sell? I sell air, and, you know. Uh, yeah, and, and he had to go off and 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 rope cattle, I guess. But uh, yeah, I could see. I I used to have. I used to do the morning show uh, at Exito 105.5 in Miami. And then I would have to go out and sell my show. Hey, did you just hear the show? Well, now I'm here at lunch selling you my show, you know, selling the air on my show. Oh, that was, the that was the worst. That was the worst. I'd rather do the show and not sell the show. Uh, the handfuls, uh, the handful of, of times that I've been a salesman, uh, I realized you have to believe in what you're selling. That's the only way I got through Selling air and even selling exercise at ballys was believing in the in the thing that I was selling. Yes, you need this thing because it's going to be it's going to enhance your life, whether it be airtime on the radio or or exercise at at ballys at a at a gym. And I'm guessing that that's you have to believe in the in the things that you're selling, right, Pete?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The first thing you need to know is if, if you're selling something that you don't believe in a product that you don't believe in. Uh, you should not do that. Uh, I mean, if I'm selling my radio show, if I don't believe in that radio show, um, obviously it's not going to sell. I'm, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to influence anyone and I'm not going to feel good about the product. And, you know, it's kind of like the old flash dance uh, song. You want to dance through your life. You want to do things that are fun to do so that when you look back at your life, you can say what? You won't say what if. What if I didn't do this? What if I could have done that? You want to be able to enjoy your life. And I always tell people, That, yeah, a job is a job, but you're looking for a career. You're looking for something that's going to make you feel good. Um, And whenever I talk to people, I said, My claim to fame isn't uh, all the interviews I've done, the books I've written, learning to fly, doing doing everything. Second to my family, the most important thing I ever did in my life was being able to promote automated external defibrillators uh, and work with paramedics and EMTs. By the way, when we did the ACLS courses, and the basic life support courses uh, for trainers, uh, as well as the, pa- the pediatric advanced life support for our courses, the best people, the people that were the best instructors who became instructors to instruct the instructors, were usually paramedics, EMT, and ER nurses. Docs were not on that list.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you're, <laughs> so you're in it. In it. You know, as a paramedic uh, on the streets, man, you're in it day in, day out. And uh, as a nurse, for sure, you're in it. The doctors, uh, you know, when I worked in the middle of the night as, as, and I'm going to call I'm going to uh, call out some of these doctors, they would sleep in a room until, uh, you know, the the test results were back. You know, uh, uh, wake me up when the test results come back. But uh, I would work 7 p.m. until 7 a.m. And the docs slept quite a few of those hours. And, and yeah. the nurses and myself, the tech, were doing most of the work, making sure that the patient was taken care of. Man, so man, I, I know I've taken a little bit of your time, Pete, but uh, there, there's one thing on the blurb. you've gone through most of the other things. We got the sales executive, aviation pilot, actor, former DJ, What's a slightly aging tennis player? Well, tell me about the tennis. Could you have been the the next Andre Agassi? What, what happened, Pete? No, I played tennis. Again, I played tennis in college. I enjoyed it. I uh, wasn't the
1: greatest, but I did okay. Um, I, the thing when you get to be my age, and I'm 62 years old now, I was playing a hardball, not softball, but hardball in the 30 and over league until about four or five years ago. But then there, there comes a time, and if you recall – Moneyball. There comes a time when the sport itself tells you you cannot play it anymore, <laughs> and it happens sometimes early in your career, sometimes later in your career. I was lucky enough to try out with the New York Mets in 1978 in a closed tryout at Shea Stadium for three weekends. I made it that close to the the, the top 20, and I I was one of the last people to get cut, and uh, that was fantastic. But I stopped playing baseball about two or three year, about five years ago because of my knees and because I couldn't stretch a single into a double or a double into a triple and didn't want to. Uh, and that's a, a problem. So but tennis has always been there, I, before this end of this podcast, uh, that's where I came from. I was playing competitive tennis. Uh, I still play, uh, regularly. I still have a, a 90 mile an hour first serve, which is not bad. Oh. And, uh, I do, I do play with a, a gallery once in a while. Her name is Kat, uh, Katarina Lindquist. You might recall in 1985, she was number 10 in the world, in the world, in the Women's Tennis Association. She beat Steffi Graf. She beat Martina Navratilova. She beat uh, uh, Pam Shriver. And uh, it's funny, whenever I play her, she loves to do this to me. She'll let me get ahead in a set. Like I'll get 3-1, 4-1, one, one, and obviously 6 is where you want to, in order to get the set. And I'll get the 3-1, 4-1, one, one, maybe even 5-1. And then she goes into high gear. And Katarina comes back from four to one and five to one. Ungodly shots like you would not believe. And I'm hitting her hard. Wow. And before she before we're done, I lose this single time. <laughs> That's why she made it to the semifinals in Wimbledon, in the US Open, in Australian Open, because they're on a different level. The, the, and she's still got it.
0: So what's it like to be the prey of a lioness? Just she's just toying with you. She's she's toying with her <laughs> with her food. Oh my goodness! Absolutely, oh, absolutely. I-
1: and I'm and I'm thinking I'm doing really well, <laughs> and I actually am doing pretty well. But because we got people coming over and say, "Wow, he might beat her," and there's a big crowd on, you know, looking at he's gonna beat her, she's gonna beat her, he's gonna beat her. And then, no, as the crowd got bigger, bigger, obviously the, big, the points were you know were bigger. And Katarina was just uh, this is this is why she's still. Uh, one, of the, one of the top people, and, and uh, one of the reasons why I like playing her, is that uh, she is, uh, compared to she's a, a two-time Olympian, she won a bronze medal, uh, I guess, one year uh, in the Olympics. So. Well, she
0: sounds like a showman. That's great. And, and it, that's what yeah. you do. To, to make yourself better, you got to play with people that are better than you. You got to learn from people that are better than you. Uh, that's how that's how you, you strive. You, you get better. And, uh, yeah, and, and I go back to your, your wife pushing you along, man. It sounds like she's She's very, very special, and I'm, I'm very glad that, that you have each other uh, to get through this crazy life. I mean, how's, how's COVID treating you up out there in Jersey?
1: Well, obviously, uh, you're familiar with New York City and, and New York, where we had 35,000 deaths in the first two months of COVID. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we weren't being, we weren't able to handle the situation quite well. It got pretty bad here, um, and st- I, I, now the rest of the country is is going through what New York went, and thank God. We're at least able to handle the situation better as far as being able to, you know, to, to have different best practices on, on how to actually overcome this disease. Less deaths, less percentage. Um, if you were on a respirator here in New York City uh, during March or April, your chances of survival was about maybe 30 uh, percent coming off all the ventilators. Uh, things have changed. Uh, there's a cocktail now. People are doing different things. And the disease itself, or in this case, the virus itself, uh, is, has weakened a little. So we're, we're better. But it was crazy here. My daughter actually, as I told you earlier, is a graduate student. She's working at Mount Sinai. She actually interviews a lot of the COVID patients after they've recovered the long-term information and care research, which Mount Sinai does, uh, and will share with the rest of the world. Uh, so it's So she's dealing with them all the time. And... The problem with COVID right now is that, yes, it is a virus, and yes, you most likely will overcome it and be fine. Uh, Even with risk factors, there's still a a very good chance. But long-term effects is going to be where we're going to have to start doing research on this, and that's one of the things that we're doing now. I mean, and that's what she's doing now is is coming up with how to deal with the long-term effects
0: of of this virus. Well, I, I thank your daughter uh, for the scientific work that she's doing. I don't know who to believe. You know, I got some scientists that are saying it's not so bad. And some scientists will say it's terrible. I, you, know, uh, you know, and you got the, the president that says, hey, I got it uh, and throws off his mask. Everything's great. You know, so I, I don't know what to believe, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, it, whether this virus is like the flu or, or worse than the flu everybody's going to get it eventually like the flu. If you've had the flu before, you're going to get COVID at some point in your life. It's, it's here. It's, it's with us for a while. What do you think?
1: Yeah. But but, but again, I have to state this and I, you know, on Facebook, I get those, those, those uh, posts all the time that it's of hoax. It's not real. And you know what I, you know what I say to them? I, I always respond to people like that. And I say, I'm glad you're you're safe in wherever you live, and it's mostly the midwest or or somewhere mm. uh, where where it's not that crowded where there's not a lot of people. but I, I say, look, uh, i would I would have a different story. If you were in New York City, and New Jersey and Connecticut, when we had our first patient, which was actually in uh, Westchester County, and what happened in the next three months? You should do a tour of duty at a hospital system. Or an EMT, or a paramedic, or a doctor, or an MD, or even a layperson for the two months that we had to survive here in New York City, your tune would change. This is serious stuff. Even though it's not as bad as you think it is, mm. and yes, we now know how to deal with it better, mm. it's still very serious stuff. And I mean that.
0: No, I appreciate that perspective, uh, Pete Trabucco. Here in in Arkansas, where I currently reside, it it almost was business as usual. We almost kept everything open. There was that first two months where we kind of locked everything down and I lost all my DJ jobs. So it it was a little struggle for that first two months. But, uh, you know, now we're we're out. Wear your mask. I I truly believe that whether you believe it or not, uh, wear your mask. It, It can't hurt. It's not hurting anybody. You know, and you got people that, oh, I got respiratory problems. Well, then stay home, you know, uh, uh, for the rest of us. Go out, do your business, wear your mask. That's a that's an important uh, uh, important part. Even even the, the the doctors, Dr. Fauci, who may or may not get uh, fired in the next week or so. <laughs> I, I trust it, what he's saying. He seems like a pretty smart guy. Yeah, but uh, yeah, wear your mask. That's a, that's an important thing. All right, Peter Bucco, I know'm I'm, I'm, I'm taking your time any other avenues you want to explore you want to talk about uh, or any shout outs you want to give you want to brag on your family a little bit more
1: <laughs> well no I, I thank you for your time I do appreciate it um, you know you have a great show I've been, I've been watching your podcast and uh, you know it, it's a shame I can't see you on the screen but um, because you know I, I hate when when the screen's just me, is i don't i'd rather be the little the little dot in the bottom there so yes. i don't see me that closely you know it's like uh, no one ever likes their voice on radio when it's on tape and they're like oh my god do i really sound like that well it's the same thing with video i i prefer to be in cleveland you know that far back you know when when someone's doing an interview with me but i do appreciate the time uh you know be safe obviously uh you know it. it we're still not out of the woods yet, and when a vaccine is there, uh, that will help. But as, as you said, this is not going to go away anytime soon, and it's going to be, have to be implemented in our lives. And, like, you know, we're, we're a very good species. We can overcome anything. Just go back to the, the Battle of Britain. Every day, the Germans came over and bombed uh, England and, and the UK, and people just went through like life was normal. They would sweep up, clean up, and continue the day, even though the next day they know it's going to get bombed all over again. People are very resilient, and, and we are. After 911 here in the New York City area, we were able to recover, and now the rest of the world is able to recover. Our life has changed a little bit, but we've we've, we've adapted. Same thing will happen now with COVID 19, uh, and just keep positive.
0: Now I believe that to be true, and there you go, motivational speaking and getting people all motivated and happy and. And looking on the bright side of things, how do people find your, your book and uh, how do people find your your various social medias and how do you want people to connect with you?
1: Well, uh, the books are out. Basically, you can find them uh, anywhere books are sold. America's Top Roller Coasters and Amusement Parks and a personal guide to the best um, thrill rides, amusement parks and water parks. Um, you can also find it at Starry Night Publishing, uh, www.petetribugo.com, my last name. And, of course, the radio show, which is uh, also a podcast, uh, which will be um, the Weekly Rush with myself and Sharon Mann. And um, that would be www.wwdbam.com. <laughs> and, again, my if you buy my book, uh, and, again, you're going to get one, obviously. But if you buy my book, oh, the only thing I recommend is if I give a book out to anyone, please donate $25 to any charity that you want uh because again i like to pay it forward for every book i either sell or give
0: out will do sir will do Pete Tribuco. i usually finish these things off with last words for the people Pete Tribuco, give some last words for the people it could be some words to live by some something that you heard a long long time ago or just whatever pops into your head at this moment in time Pete Tribuco. Last words for the people.
1: Well, the one thing I can state is, uh, and again, by writing my books, uh, what comes out to me is enjoy your life. Don't be on the sidelines. Do all the things that you can do. I understand that we don't live forever and that we should all enjoy every day, one day at a time. And never stop telling your family, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your siblings, just your friends that you love them because you just never know. When you'll
0: get that call. Well, there you have it, party people. Pete Tribuco, man, that he he has already led a life—roller uh, coasters, a pilot, acting, motivational speaker. But I guess his best accomplishment is putting uh, defibrillators all over the country. You know, and it all started in Jersey. I guess a. Lo- a little company in in texas uh, but by way of jersey i'm so happy that he did that i'm so glad that he did that and and so many people are alive because he did that helping out with that legislation putting it through in new jersey and i guess once you get jersey and new york into the mix the whole rest of the country pretty much falls into place there's a lot of people up there and if if they're doing something yeah i guess everybody else uh Wants to keep up with what they're doing as well. All right? Some people in the South would say, ooh, New York, that's some big city stuff. Well, you know, New York, they got a lot of people. And and uh, there's a, uh, when you got that many people jammed together, some good IV ideas come out of the mix. So there. <laughs> yeah, that's We need people. We need people. And uh, sales. I forgot about sales. The guy's always a salesman, no matter what. Pete, you're, you're the goods, man. You're the goods. Cool in the gang, as it were. <laughs> all right, keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate it, man. I'll keep following you around. Uh, Pete Tribuco, everybody, follow him around. PeteTribuco.com. That uh, that that website pretty much says it all. It, it gives you all the tent poles of Pete Tribuco for sure. And I I got it all in the show notes. It's all there. So click the links. Click click click. All right. Now, of you, I'm turning my attention to you. Would like to tell your story. I encourage you to check out. Well, I encourage you to give me a call at radio (laughs) at three (laughs) zero. I was talking about Miami and I I remember my three Oh five number. All right. I encourage you to give me a call at five zero one four seven zero six three eight six or email radio. What.com. That's it for me. It's keys. Dan radio. What DJ little rock.com. What makes you famous? Peace. I'm out of here, Radio what? The music you want?
1: Hey, guys. This is Shelley G with a fast fact. Elvis's favorite
0: collectibles were official badges. He collected police badges in almost every city he performed in. Do you have a fast fact? Share it with us at interactive radio radio what.com. If you like what you hear, follow what makes you famous, social media. Use the hashtag, What Makes You Famous. Follow on Facebook at What Makes You Famous. Follow on Instagram at What Makes You Famous. Follow on Twitter at MakesFamous, And follow on YouTube at KeysDan. Leave What Makes You Famous podcast a review and subscribe. PayPal.me forward slash KeysDan. Email info at radio what.com. What makes you famous podcast is a production of KeysDan Enterprises Incorporated at keysdan.com. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Shelly G. She said, What? Well, you are going to have to listen to the countdown to hear what I say. And
1: make sure to keep listening to Radio What for more information and trivia. She said,
0: what?